finishing off chapter one of Second Peter. If you didn't know, we're in Second Peter. It's uh, we went through First Peter, and we thought Peter's just so awesome. We'll continue on to Second Peter, and uh, I mean they're right next to each other. It just seemed to be the logical next step. Um, and our series, though, we're keeping the same title from First Peter, which is standing out in a foreign world. We've been looking at keeping in mind as Christians today. Always want to kind of have this. Uh, view that or this perspective that we aren't of this world we're not of this uh, kingdom if you will we're of the kingdom of God right we belong to him we're children of God and so with that in mind we want to take that into consideration when we're living our lives day to day how am I living my life how am I conducting myself uh, amongst the people that I work with that I'm studying with or whatever it might be Um, am I conducting myself in a way that it's that I, I do stand out, that I stand firm in what I believe? Am I willing to stand up for what I believe when necessary? And being concrete, because we want to do everything right with love, but we want to navigate that well so that we never lose our true identity, never lose who we really are, that we're not of this world, we're of the kingdom of God. And that's our true nature, our true identity. We don't want to get too much mixed into the world around us that that becomes unclear, especially for ourselves. So that's kind of been the underlining theory or the underlining theme, I mean, of this series, which will continue on through the rest of this letter as well. Uh, now to start, we're going to read the text together. We're, I guess I said, we're in uh, chapter 1 of Second Peter. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to that chapter. Um, but before we do, I have a, just a quick disclosure for you guys. Um, we're going to reread some of what we read last week. We're actually going to read from verse 14 to 21. Um, I think that it kind of is the, that's like the full section. He's kind of, con- his full thought there. It is a letter, right? It's not, uh, he didn't break this up into sections of verses and, and chapters. That was done much later. And uh, sometimes we have to kind of follow the thought that he's uh, putting there in the text. And I, so I want to read this all together so we can kind of have it in view, looking at the full thought he's trying to make here. And, uh, but our focus is going to be unpacking verses 19 to 21. That's kind of where we left off last week. Also, uh, normally here in Calvary Chapel, we read the NIV. It's the New International Version. Uh, typically, that's primarily what we use. It's what I have here in my pulpit and uh, what is usually on the screen behind me. But I am going to read the ESV for our main text today. Uh, The reason for that is that the NIV chops it up uh, a little bit differently than the ESV. Uh, The ESV really tries to always cling as close as possible to the original Greek. Uh, Obviously, when you're translating, that's not always possible. You lose something. You're going to lose uh, some kind of character trait of the of the, of the text itself uh, when you're translating. And the NIV tries to go more with the, the overall feeling and, and meaning, and the ESV sticks closer to the actual words, like wor- more word-for-word translation or as close as possible. And because of that, they keep the flow of, of longer sentences, and I think they use certain terms that are, make it a little bit more clear on what... Um, well, we want to know what is Peter trying to say here, right? We want to know what is his message. And so with a really important text that we're looking at today, uh, arguably one of the most important in the New Testament when it comes to our understanding of Scripture. And so we want to be as close, in this case, I think, to the Greek as possible. What actually, what uh, Paul, or sorry, what Peter actually wrote. 
So, all that to say, let's read the text together. Verse 14 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son, or this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word about your word today. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, Lord, to gain understanding, to grow in our knowledge of you and of your word and its importance in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us today and that you would soften my heart to speak only your truth as we look through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 1 of Peter's letter here, of Peter's second letter, is concluding with an attempt, I think, to solidify, if you will, the key theme and purpose that he's just laid out all through the chapter. All through this chapter, there's been one kind of key theme he's been pointing at from different directions. And this is him kind of trying to solidify this and give us some important tools that we'll need uh, to use. So if we're to sum up that purpose, I would say it would be best in verse 10 which is, brothers and sisters, I'll read a section of it, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. We want to, he wants to see us confirm our, our election, confirm our calling from God, to be assured of it. The verse here stands at the center point, both literally as it's verse 10, it's kind of right in the middle, but it's also the center point of everything he's been focusing on as he's gone through chapter 1 that we are to confirm our calling and our election. Be assured through and through that, yes, I do, in fact, belong to God. Be assured of it. Know it. Be confident in it. He's trying to build up our confidence and give us these images of what this life looks like, what a confidence or how to build a confidence in that or in our, the assurance of our salvation actually looks like. And it's a must. It's vital. It's it's so important to seek this out, uh, not in my notes, but just came to my mind that you know Paul also talks about this when he says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There should be this kind of work that we're doing. It's not a work to gain salvation. It's not a work that we're earning, right? He's he starts the chapter by saying that he wants grace to abound in us, so it's all centered around grace, but there's an assurance that we want to seek out in our lives. A confidence that I know I belong to God. And I don't just believe it, I know it to be true. To have an assurance that we are children of God. And this is vital if we're ever to hope to 
achieve the goal of, or the main theme of this series to stand out as foreigners in this world, to truly stand firm in what we believe. We need to have that assurance in what we believe, to have that confidence in who we are in Christ. So that's been kind of his key theme, I, I would say, throughout this uh, first chapter. Now, he wants us to have this confidence, but we know also, right, everybody has doubts, and I want to just kind of take a moment if you're like, ah, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not, I don't have that assurance, I don't know what you're talking about, that it's, that's not, a, that's not an, a bad thing. Everybody has moments of doubt, and I think when we're working out our salvation, when we're seeking this assurance, we are going to have these, we're going to battle with these moments, and that's another reason why Peter is being so adamant to paint this for us, to show us the importance of this and what it actually looks like. What Peter is trying to do is to show us the tools that we need, the tools that we have to break through those moments and come out the other side more assured, more confident in our assurance, in our relationship to God, that we do, in fact, belong to him. What tools do we have for our assurance? Just really quickly, some of the things that we've already looked at in this, uh, in this series so far, um, but uh, just to kind of show you, we'll kind of sum up all of chapter 1, put a nice little bow on it, if you will. Verse 3, he says, His divine power, and that's Jesus talking about, Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us. So we have everything we need to, to seek this confidence out, to have this confidence this assurance. And the source of that is Christ's power, Jesus' power, his divine authority and power in our lives and over all of creation. It starts there, and it's the grace that we receive in knowing him. And we talked about that at the beginning, that we, it's not just knowing about him, it's knowing him personally. It's that personal relationship we have. We definitely don't want to push aside experience that we have with Christ as something that can can feed into our assurance, feed into uh, our confidence that we belong to him. It starts there. It's his divine power that gives us everything we need. We know him in this very personal and intimate way. But also, seeking to know him more, right? He uses this word knowledge. And I mentioned uh, also before that he uses this word knowledge about 18 times in this very short uh, letter he writes. So knowledge is a key element and that's what we're going to be kind of tying in today. He also wants us to seek to know him and grow in our knowledge of him. To grow in the knowledge of Christ. Who is Christ? We want to know him personally in our prayer life, in our experiences we have with him. But we also want to know about him. We want to know of him. And from this, he tells us another tool, another key element to seeking that assurance or making it uh, confirmed in our lives in five, verse 5 through 7. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but he just says to make every effort to add to your faith, right? Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, which is the love we have for each other as, as believers, right? And also, or brotherly love is what it's, is a better translation, and love itself. Love as in the love that we have for humanity, the love we have for the people on the street, the love we have for the lost, so we want to make every effort to add these things to our faith, to add these things to our walk with the Lord, to see these things, these virtues, 
multiplied, he even uses the word, multiplied in our lives. We want to make every effort. And as we do, we move always a little bit closer, ever closer to this assurance. And as we see these virtues multiplied in our lives, right, we can, and how do you know that? Well, look back. Look back at your life, maybe not a week, maybe not a day. You might not see a whole lot of growth. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. We're compared a lot to trees. Trees don't, you can't watch a tree grow necessarily, unless you are very, very patient. But if you look back long enough, you can see growth in your life. Am I seeing these things multiplied in my life? And they won't all happen at once, and they don't happen necessarily in, in the order that he gives them. But we want to see, am I growing in these things? And, am I, and the real question is, am I making every effort to grow in these things? So he says this is another sign or a way that we can seek out to have an assurance in our faith. Am I growing? Am I making every effort to grow in these virtues? And as we even make that effort in itself, we will, in fact, grow because of it, just in that making effort. And we have, uh, we've covered that uh, already last week. We covered a lot of that already, so I don't want to go into too much detail with that aspect of it. But we're going to do, we, the big question is, am I making every effort? Am I truly making every effort? In verse 4, he goes on, he has given us, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So this is another aspect, another part of the tools that we have in seeking our assurance. He has given us his very, his great, very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. And that's kind of actually, that's, I, I did that backwards. I did it on purpose. That's how he sets up before we can make every effort. That we have these precious promises that we can know and stand on. They're the foundation for everything we do. If we want to see the divine nature, if we want to see that transformation, we're not being uh, led by or manipulated by the desires of our heart, but seeking a divine nature, making every effort to see these virtues uh, manifest and multiply in our lives, that we have this foundation of these great and precious promises. But where are these promises? And how do we use this as a tool? What are these precious promises? Well, today we're going to be examining our greatest tool that we have, the greatest gift that God has given us. And it's one that we can see, one that we can hold in our hands, one that we can truly use as we make every effort. And here in this last bit of chapter one, he paints a clear picture of where we go to gain and to grow in the knowledge that we absolutely need about Christ, about our salvation in order to stand out in this foreign world. Everything that we need, and that is in fact, of course, the word of God, the Bible. Surprise. All right, I expect you guys to be just like, what? The Bible? We're talking about the Bible in church? The Bible is God's word. And I want to go through this text hopefully hoping that you guys can get a new excitement about the Bible today, a new passion, a new connection 
and see it more as the great tool that it is and the importance that it holds in seeing us grow, seeing us be able to make those efforts, to see that the Christian virtues that he listed uh, manifest and multiply in our lives. This is a great tool. The Bible is the word of God. It is true and it is trustworthy. And it holds the power to see your lives transformed. In itself, it holds power and authority to transform your lives and to set you on the firm foundation of your faith as you walk with God. It sets you firmly on a foundation so that you do have confidence. Martin Luther is a great example of of how the Word of God can transform. Um, He said this about Romans 1.17. He said, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by, by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the, that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, and I have gone through open doors into paradise. He was transformed. He used this tool took him quite a while to get there. He meditated on it. He used that tool to the best of his ability, not knowing what, struggling with it, wrestling with this verse. But through it, it transformed his life. To say at the end of a Bible study, I feel as though I've been reborn. I've gone through open doors into paradise. The Word of God has this authority and power to transform our lives, and it works its way into all parts of our Christian walk. And Martin Luther's a great example, because what would our world look like today without the work the Bible did on Martin Luther? It changed him. He was reborn. He had this great experience of understanding the truth of God, and yet it impacted all of the Christian church. He paved the way to bring this tool to our hands today, right? These precious promises into our view by translating it into translating the Bible into a common language which changed everything. The Bible is more though than just words. They hold power, they hold authority. Verse 14 I'll reread just the beginning of it. So, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Right? And he goes on, he says, we were eyewitnesses. And he's talking about Christ's transfiguration, which we looked at last week. And I think to this, how many of us would trust our own eyes? I trust my eyes most of the time. Unless I'm like really tired, maybe. Start to like see things when it gets late at night. We trust our eyes. If we see something with our eyes, we believe it's there. I believe this podium is here. I can see it. He was there with Christ, and that in itself gives Peter this unique and trustworthy perspective, right? He trusts, he says, you can trust me, I've been there, I, I saw Christ in his glory as he'll come the second time. And so it makes, it gives value to his words, especially in regard to Jesus' second coming. But what I want, the reason I want to point that out is, is how 
or draw your attention to verse 19 and how he transitions from that. So it wasn't myths, we didn't make this up, but we were eyewitnesses, we saw it. But in verse 19 then he transitions to, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Meaning what? Meaning the written word of God is more confirmed, more perfect, more worthy of trust than his own eyewitness experience. How often do we trust our own experience more than the word of God? Well, the word of God says this, but I just don't feel it in that way, or I don't, I, I had this different experience, or I, I, saw, I see things differently. And he's saying, I've seen Jesus transfigured before me in glory and majesty, but the, the Old Testament prophecies are more fully confirmed than what I saw with my own eyes. That's a powerful transition. That's a powerful statement. We talked about last week how crazy it must have been for him to experience that. I mean, Elijah's there. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Elijah and um, <laughs> Moses. Sorry, Isaiah and Moses. I'm, I'm getting there. So he, he sees this, you know, this really incredible thing with his own eyes. And yet, he's saying, these prophecies are more firmly, more fully confirmed, and we would do well to pay attention to them, pay attention to what they say. That's Peter's point, that, Jesus, that the scripture about Jesus, and he's especially talking about right, the promise of Jesus' second coming, which we see in the books of Isaiah and all of these Old Testament prophets, is more trustworthy even than his own eyewitness experience. And we would do well to pay attention to it, to hold on to it, because it contains life and power to transform us. So how is it more confirmed? He goes on into verse 20, and we looked at the rest of 19 last week, so we'll jump into verse 20 now. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, I want to pause on this one because there, there's a... First of all, we can see this really big difference, right? You and I can be looking at the same thing and describe two very different images. And someone might even say, if they heard our descriptions, that we weren't even looking at the same image at all. And yet, we can trust this pro the prophecies of Scripture. We can trust the Word of God and know that it has an absolute truth contained within it. That's what we're going to look at. So first of all, prophecy of Scripture, clearly talking about the Old Testament, but it definitely applies to all of the Bible, uh, both Old and New Testament. And he says here, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And here's where I want to pause and just, there are a few different angles in which this has been kind of taken apart. And this is why I went with the ESV, because the NIV kind of translates it into what, how they interpret it. Uh, but in Greek, it's, this is much closer to the Greek, um, where we don't have a specific person mentioned. The NIV, I think, uses the prophet's 
themselves. And so that's, I want to look at just two of the few different ways that this is looked at because I believe both of them hold merit and both of them are something that we can take something from. And, and I think actually it could even be that Peter is implying both of them and that's why he used uh, or built the sentence the way that he did in a, in a way that it's kind of both can be applied. So number one, you could see this as no prophecy comes from the prophet's own interpretation of the events surrounding the prophecy. And that's kind of a little bit closer to how the NIV says it. And meaning that they, they wrote about events, right? So the, prophecy, the, the prophets wrote about things that were happening around them, about words of God that they spoke, and they also, within those, talked about things that were to come, including Christ himself. And when they are describing or when they are relaying these messages and these, about these events that are unfolding, one way to look at this is that they are not doing this in themselves. They're not doing, it's not their own interpretation. They're not just kind of giving their opinion here. They're not just seeing, well, here's what I, I heard. Here's what I think it means. Uh, but it's not their own interpretation of, what, of the events that they're talking about or prophesying about. And this is true. This is definitely a truth uh, that we can see confirmed in other scriptures, but I think he also confirms it in verse 21 in the sense that he says that all scripture, right, is all prophecy is from God, is spoken from God uh, through the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at in a moment. So there is definitely a truth there. But on the other hand, when talking or taking into account all of this letter, all of Second Peter, I believe Peter, it seems like Peter might be pointing uh, to more than this alone, especially um, as he's going to kind of cover that point, I think, more clearly in verse 21. So the second thing, or the second way we could read this, is that no prophecy of Scripture should be, the, or should be interpreted by one individual, meaning two things. I think one is that we, reading it, so he could be referring to himself here as, as interpreting the, the Old Testament prophecies and all of the, um, those who are reading it, that we, when we read these, should not make or take or mold our own version of the truth from Scripture, that we shouldn't conform it into something that we want it to mean. And I think the second part of that would be that any great truth is not ever going to stand alone. It's not going to be only one verse. It will always fall into line with the Bible as a whole. So if you have one, you know, obscure verse and you think, oh, well, you know, this, if you can fit it in with the rest of the Bible. All the great truths fit in with the rest of the Bible. And I think this is an important one for us to just take a moment to remember, to note that when we read the Bible, we are not simply to seek out our own interpretation, to make it something that fits our philosophies, but to remember that they were written by God through the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Meaning they do have, they do contain an absolute truth within them. There is a truth. And sometimes we can see how this verse or that verse might be, we can try to figure out what exactly are they trying to say here. And we want to do that. We want to try to figure out what is the meaning here? What are they trying to say? Where does this fit in with the context? And if it's something that doesn't fit in with the rest of the Bible, chances are we're not interpreting it correctly because God is the one who spoke these truths by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we really 
is a, a big part of what we believe here, a big part of our foundation in Calvary Chapel, if you didn't know or didn't notice. Uh, we go through the text. We, take, uh, um, we go through one book at a time. We go through it from beginning to end, or at least 90% or more, more like 99%. And, uh, and we don't want to take one verse and build our doctrine out of it. We don't want to take one thing here and one thing there and try to, okay, here's what I believe. Let me just take all of these verses that kind of seem like they're saying what I want them to say and put them together way out of context. We want to really be sensitive to that and avoid that and look out for it. And I'm not, I mean, I know I'm, I like topical preaching too, and then obviously you're going to have that. Um, but we need to just be cautious when we're hearing people speak when we're hearing people use the word of God you know how does that verse how okay here's what they're saying that verse means but when I read it he's talking about something completely different what do I do with that there's a truth in those verses there's a truth in the way and the reason they were put there and we want to keep that in mind and not twist the verses or twist anything to fit our own uh, philosophies our own ideas our own ideals we want to find the truth contained in the Word of God or get as close as we can to it. And the key theme in this letter is going to be false teachers. Next week, we're going to start it. We'll do two weeks on it. In chapter 2, he's going to go into some depth about false teachers and warnings against them. And what they were doing, and even in chapter 3 as well, they were twisting the Bible and they were twisting the apostolic letters, so including you know, letters like Peter's letters and Paul's letters, they were twisting them from the truth that, or twisting them into a truth that suited their needs, suited what they wanted, what they wanted to, what they wanted the Christian faith to be. And Paul and Peter both warn strongly against this. And so there is a truth here, and we never want to base our entire doctrine on a verse or a partial verse or little bits and pieces here and there. Not that we can't pull different things together. If I do a topical sermon, I feel like someone's going to come up and be like, hey, what the heck, you're using different verses. And we, can, we, can, we can do that. We can build sermons, we can, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we want to make sure that we're, we're using it the way it was written, the way it was meant to be understood, not twisting it for our own benefit. And that can be a really dangerous thing to do. There is an absolute truth in Scripture. Now that said, I do want to say, because we're all Christians, we're all hopefully reading the Bible, right, every day, uh, that there are situations where a verse will speak to us as individuals. All right, that's important to keep in mind, right? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And Paul, I don't have this verse, but Paul also talks about that all scripture is, is breathed of God. I think maybe I have it later, but it's, it's good for, for teaching. It's good for training us, encouraging us. The scripture teaches us and, and speaks to us on a personal level. And I don't want to, I'm not talking about, you know, pushing that aside. That's important too, that when we read, God will, it's alive, it's active, it's, it's the word of God, and it will speak into our lives. But they will, those things that we feel God is speaking to us will never undermine the absolute truth found in Scripture. It will never undermine that. 
It will never disregard it. There's a fundamental difference between God speaking to our hearts, right, through the word of God, and building a doctrine based solely on how a verse makes us feel at a given time. And so we don't want to base our doctrines on those moments. We want to tie them in with the absolute truth of God's word as a whole. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That about sums it up, I think. It's God's word. But there's some important things I think we, I want to unpack here. No prophecy, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. What does that mean? Never produced by the will of man. Well, I think it means this, that Isaiah, when he sat down to write, a, when he was writing a prophecy, when he was writing, he didn't think, hmm, today I'm going to write a really good prophecy. I'm going to put a little beginning and end, some crazy things in the middle. God said this, God said that. It's going to be good. It's going to be on, the, on Oprah's bestseller list for sure. That's not how it worked. They didn't, it didn't come from their own will. It wasn't their idea. They weren't trying really hard to make a good prophecy. They didn't initiate it. It was not rooted in them. They were not the origin of any word that was spoken or written. They wrote, they spoke from the spirit, what the Spirit of God told them to speak when they were told to do it. My favorite verse on this, something that inspires me too, is Jeremiah 20, verse 9. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it, back, of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That is a good depiction of how it worked how it worked exactly, we don't know. It's, a, it's a, one of the miracles and mysteries of God. But we know it wasn't them. It was something that was in him. And he was like, I can't, I tried to hold, if I tried to hold it back, it would burn through my chest. I have to speak these things because God put them into me in order to speak them or in order to write them down. This is, this is not the sound or the depiction of a man who wanted to write something memorable. In fact, the impression is that of a man that cannot hold in, even if he tried, the words God has given him to speak. When God wants to speak through someone and the Holy Spirit is filling you with the words, it's going to come out, especially for these Old Testament prophets who, it says they were holy men, which just means that they were set apart. They were set apart for this task. God chose them to do this. And so when God filled them with that spring of, of his truth, it was going to come out. If, they, if you try to hold back a spring, you might be able to for a while, but eventually the pressure is going to build and it's going to explode. That is how all prophecy in Scripture came about. It says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This word carried is a, a cool word. Um, I, it has a lot of different, it's a very colorful word. And uh, I did a lot of research on this in, as far as uh, what it was, how it was used in different ways in the Greek. And one of the ways that it was used is, is for 
the a boat being carried by the wind catching the sails. And I think that's a really cool image. I think maybe he's trying to play with that a little bit. Obviously, we don't know. Can't just jump into Peter's mind. But that's kind of, I think, the image that helps me the best when we look at this. That all scripture is from the Holy Spirit, right? And they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. A ship can't move without a sail, a sailing ship, uh, can't move without wind. And so they didn't have anything. They didn't have anything to speak. They didn't have anything that any prophecy to give. They had to be carried by the Holy Spirit to be able to deliver those messages. The humans behind these truths were being carried along by the Spirit. And here's where it gets interesting. It says, but prophets, though human, spoke from God. And that, I think this really kind of really opened up to me in a new way when I was studying it this, this week, mostly last night. And I, that I never really saw it before. It says, no prophets, though, the, but prophets, though human, spoke from God. So their nature, their style, their educational background, all, makes, all that makes them who they are is still there in some way. So they're human. They're still human. That the message is from God. It's God's message. God spoke Though they were human, it was God that was speaking. There's this kind of connection of God and man. And what that means is that they're not God's pen. It's not like God picked them up and wrote something down through them or with them. They're real people. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the message that God was telling them to write. The Holy Spirit does it through them as individuals. That's really a cool and powerful image for me. To try to grasp. And there are, there are many examples of this uh, throughout all of the Bible that we could get into, but as I'm pushing into the time, I'm going to settle on two, which I think we see really clearly in the New Testament, which is Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul, we, we can use them because we know quite a lot about them, right? We hear a lot about or see a lot of Peter's uh, life and, and how he kind of reacted to things and the kind of person he was through the Gospels and also through his letters. And Paul, who we also hear, read a lot about in Acts, um, also wrote a large portion, about 72% of the New Testament. So we can really get a lot about who he was and his character. And a lot, as I've pointed out, right, this is Peter's kind of deathbed epitaph. This is his final writing. He knows it. He knows he's about to die. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, he says in the, here also in chapter 1, and Paul also has a similar thing in 2 Timothy. He also says that, that his time is coming to an end. He knows he's going to die. He knows this is most likely his last writing, and he writes it with that in mind. And there's a lot of similarities about the truths that they give, right? They're speaking with the authority. They're apostles. That means they're, they're speaking with the authority given to them by Jesus Christ. And they're speaking the truth, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, and so you have these really great truths, and a lot of them overlap between the two of them. But what's interesting is how different they are as people. They're so incredibly different human beings. And if you look at the writings, their actual writings, you have Paul, and, and you could also look at Luke and a few others, but especially Paul, uh, is incredibly eloquent in the way that he writes. He writes in a lot of classical Greek using very complex and articulate arguments in his writing style. It's like very beautifully written. He's, he's clearly thought through it. He's, he has a, a, a mind for it. 
And that comes in through the way that he writes. But it's still the same truths. It's still the same message that we see from Peter, who writes it from a very different perspective, a very different way, because it's still coming through him as an individual, though it's the same truths coming from God. And I think this is a cool, inter- or a cool um, image. You know, we have uh, Paul, who's highly educated. We have Peter, who's a fisherman. He learned Greek later in life, so obviously his Greek would not have, wasn't so uh, eloquent as uh, Paul's would have been. But they spoke from God, carried by the Holy Spirit. God did this while keeping their individuality intact. That's why we see so many different writing styles, so many different types of conveying a message throughout the Bible. The Bible is the word of God, and yet it connects to humanity by being spoken through human beings. There are a lot of people who are much more eloquent than I am, and I think there's this kind of cool image of how Each of us are different people, different individuals, and God expands this whole Bible and gives all of these great truths through all of these different individuals. We see the depiction of the church and how we're all one in Christ, right? We all belong to the body of Christ, and yet we're all still our individual selves. And another thing that we see, I think a great reminder that we see in one of the number one purposes of the Bible as a whole, is that Jesus' nature is displayed in the very constructs of the Bible. What a glorious image. The Bible itself proclaims and reminds us of the true nature of Jesus. What I mean by that is Jesus was fully God with all the might and authority that came with that, and he was also fully human. Jesus got tired. He took naps on boats. But he also could stand up and tell the wind to be still. Jesus got hungry. And then he could bless a boy's lunch and feed thousands. He was fully God and fully man. The Bible was written by men, set apart for the task but they were only men. And yet the words they spoke and wrote were the very words of God at the same time, holding all authority and power to transform all those that would read these words and seek these truths contained within for thousands of years to come. What a cool image that the Bible itself reminds us of the nature of Christ. And so I want to encourage you as we begin to close to seek out the Bible as true, to seek to be transformed by its power. This is the word of God breathed out by the Spirit through men carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as we pray and seek to understand it better, to increase in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that makes God's word and these precious promises within it more real to us. Seek God, seek the knowledge of God in the word of God. And as you do, I believe that 
the Holy Spirit will make it more real to you, more tangible to you, more concrete within your heart. I can tell you from my experience, as briefly as I can, that I, I've seen a few transitions in my life. I, I, I had a time when I, I kind of was walking away from, from church. I just was, you know, young and didn't want to question everything. And so I was questioning, you know, am I, do I really believe this book? Do I really believe it to be true? I, I wanted to seek out what people said about it, for it, against it. And looking back, though, in all of that time, I was reading the Word, and it was changing me. It was transforming me from the inside in ways I didn't see at the time. It was unclear, like watching a tree. But as I look back, I see that I was being molded and transformed by the Word of God itself. And I eventually came to a point where I undoubtedly believed the Bible was the Word of God. And that's a good place to be, to read the Word of God believing that it is the Word of God. It will have much more impact in your life when you do. And if you don't, then I would encourage you to continue to seek that God would reveal it as His Word. Because I can tell you, for me, about seven years ago, I went through a really another transformation a big shift in how I read the Bible, how I see it, and I remember the moment well. God showed me a new, a new way of seeing His grace as I was reading His Word and the true nature of what His Word really is, and it became something so precious and so real and so tangible to me that I never experienced before. And I no longer believed that the Bible was the Word of God. I knew and I know it is the Word of God. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in reading about, you know, things that, you know, discoveries that, we've, we've, uh, that have been made and things that have, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and many others that have shown the Bible and its authenticity. And I, I, get, I get excited about those things. But I can tell you that for me, I've come to a point as I've read the Word and as I've sought Him in the last some um, amount of years, I've really come to a point where I've, I've seen the, the truth of it revealed to me by the Holy Spirit so that I know it is God's word. And I believe that it would be odd if I was up here preaching about the, God's word if I only kind of believed it. I know it to be true and it wasn't something that came to me overnight. It wasn't something that I woke up and just, I know it's the word of God. I sought it for years and I would encourage you to do the same, to seek it out as truth so that you have a hope to stand on in the knowledge of God. In concluding, I want to read, and I'll actually I'll invite the band uh, to come up and maybe play as we uh, prepare for communion in a moment. Uh, but I want to read Psalm 1, which tells us a depiction of one who does this, who seeks the truth and stands on the word of God. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and that is the Bible, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whether they, and whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction.
the Bible is the key to our growth in knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. It has the power to transform our very nature in every aspect of our lives. Seek that truth to stand on the precious promises and build it as a foundation of your faith. Know them and meditate on them daily, day and night, that they would sink deep into your very being and become a part of who you are so that you can stand on those promises and truths and that it would be that firm foundation, that absolute essential truth, that knowledge of Christ by which everything else is built. When we do, we will be like a tree that never ceases to bear fruit and prospers in all that it does. Amen.